Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Thank you, Shelley. And um, I, it was hard to figure out how to introduce this program with the proper amount of hyperbole because the argument among critics um, seems to be whether this is one of the greatest shows on television history or the greatest show. Um, I, I think maybe what I'll do, and, and Jacob Weisberg in Slate was one of the first to call it the greatest, and, and um, he said something which I think can't really be topped. He said, no other program has done anything remotely like what this one does, namely to portray the social, political, an economic life of an American city with the scope, observational precision, and moral vision of great literature. Um, the other thing I, that's worth saying, I think, is to sort of adapt something that Nelson George said in his piece, Removing Image Source, um, that if you look at The Wire as, a, as one entity, and, and the way I watched it was to watch all 60 hours over a few weeks uh, because uh, on, on DVD, and it really plays like a great movie, and it's really the great achievement in, in narrative cinema, um, certainly of the century, and since the century's only eight years gone so far, it's not too hyperbolic to say that. Um, and so, anyhow, enough, enough introduction. We, we'll get on with the program. What, I, what we're going to do as a special treat um, to, to open things is show you something from the Season 5 DVD, um, an extra from the Season 5 DVD. This will be the premiere. Um, that's hitting the streets on August 12th, um, and it's a, a kind of summary of the show, a sort of behind-the-scenes overview of the five seasons of The Wire. We were either going to do that or just show you all 60 hours, but we'll do the 28-minute we'll version, um, and then we'll have our, um, have our panel, which is quite a lineup. So, uh, again, we want to thank HBO, and, and here, is, um, here we go with the, with the video. Okay. Well, when I talked before about how great the show is, I talked about... Um, the sort of panoramic view of the city and how it focused on all these issues. Of course, what's also great about the show is just the, how great it is as filmmaking, the performances, the writing, the directing, the acting, the whole conception of the show, um, of this enthralling series. So now you're going to meet um, some of the people who made this show, literally. Um, so, that, so they don't need much of an introduction, um, especially after you saw this. So please welcome first Clark Peters. Alice Carver. Please welcome Seth Gilliam. Thanks. And uh, try to keep your applause to under an hour for this man. I think, I think you know probably how he got here today from Baltimore. He went past the schools and the newspaper office and, um, you know, the, the courtyards and the... Um, inner city, and then went down to the port, and, uh, and then walked on water up to uh, New York to be with us. Here is David Simon. <laughs> and um, 
He played Gus Haynes in the last season, but also directed several episodes, including the pilot, um, actor-director Clark Johnson. And the hat from Homicide. And uh, everybody's favorite drinking partner is Bunk, uh, Wendell Pierce. <laughs> and a uh, great novelist who, um, and I've certainly read that his book, The Clockers, played an influential role in this show, and he got to work on the show and write some of the great scripts for it, um, novelist, uh, screenwriter, Richard Price. So I thought I would ask you something uh, just to start with about, about audience, because this is, this is an audience that loves the show, that's certainly seen every episode. Um, but you've made some comments about the, the sort of I- idea of the average TV audience and how, they're sort of, and how you have to sort of play, like dumb down what you do to an audience, and you've said things like, uh, fuck the audience, fuck them to hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> the audience doesn't know what's good for them, things like that. So just, I, I, I wanted, want you to sort of start by, by saying sort of how you thought about the audience and your conception. Well, first of all, what I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have, <laughs> I actually know that you have said fuck the <laughs> But I in a completely different context. I think actually what you said was fuck the but you go ahead. With um, the well, there was there was a little bit of nuance to fuck the audience, <laughs> just a little. Um, You're all about nuance. We, uh, you know, the idea of writing to the casual viewer or the yeah. casual reader. Um, who wants that guy? <laughs> um, it's not. There's not much you can do with it. If the, the if the person is leaning back from the television set which is the way most Americans watch TV. It's a very passive medium. Um, there's only so much you can do. Uh, it's a lot more fun if you can get them leaning into the set trying to figure out what's going on. If you can engage people on that level, um, that's the kind of viewers you want. It's the kind of readers you want if you're writing prose. Um, it just seemed like a more interesting thing to, to aspire to, but at the same time, it reminds me of that line from, uh, from Spinal Tap. Our audiences aren't getting smaller. They're just getting more selective. Um, you know, on some level, it is pretty self-defeating. But they gave us the rope, and you know, we hung ourselves. And, and what's your, uh, could you just talk a, a little bit about how your experience with Homicide, which started as your book that became a series that you were... Homicide, thing. Okay. Um, how did that sort of experience of seeing that become a TV show and how that was handled lead to what you wanted to do? I wrote a book about, I spent a year in the homicide unit, I wrote a book about the real detectives. Uh, Barry Levinson bought it, engaged Tom Fontana uh, to make it into a television drama. They did for NBC. Uh, I was a police reporter for the first couple of years of the show. I didn't quite believe, it was this weird stepchild that came to town. Uh, I didn't really believe it. I wrote one script um, with a friend of mine. He, he took that screen credit and went to Hollywood. I went back to the Metro desk. Um, and then at some point, my newspaper started going downhill, as newspapers seem to be doing, tragically. Um, and uh, I took another script, and, and I learned how to do television from that show. It was very different from the book. Uh, I'll never forget, I, I ran it to Richard. Um, Richard was working on Clockers about the same time that I was working on 
Homicide, and we had the same editor. So I got to read Clockers and Galleys, and, and I was, as you said, I was completely enamored with that book. still am. Um, but Richard said something after watching the first season of Homicide that I'll never forget. He, th- he said, there was one cop who really reminded me of the cops that you were following in Jersey City. And, he, and I said, which one was it? And it turned out to be the guy who was Gaffney with the crew cut, the real son of a bitch. And I knew exactly what he meant because I knew 14 Gaffneys in the Baltimore Police Department. Um, the show was not... The show was a marvelous entertainment. It was very well written and very well done. And it had a lot of content. And I was very proud of it. And I learned to do television on it. But it didn't resemble the world that I had depicted in the book. The book was a much darker vision. So. And I did, since you mentioned Richard, I did want to ask about how you started working together. I also heard that you, you two met on the night of the Rodney King riots. Is that true? You tell that story. Well, what happened is our editor, John Sterling at Houghton Mifflin, um, brought David over to my house uh, to meet me. It was, it was like, you know, it's like your aunt, you know, here's another nice boy. You can go talk to him. It's like, it's like it's not. No. You guys go and, write crime. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, um, and it was the, the night of the Rodney King verdict, and apparently Jersey City was blowing up. And we sort of looked at each other and held hands and had our first play date going over to Jersey City. And at some point that night, both of us wind up driving a police car with no cop in it. <laughs> this detective that was oh, taking no. us around left us. And I remember he, he said to us, listen, just have like a really angry look on your face. But if anybody approaches you, floor it. <laughs> and that, that, you know, it, it's, Nobody it's been magic ever since. Okay. So I, I want to talk about the conception of The Wire, but I... I have the advantage of having watched it sort of as a one entity, watching like 60 episodes, five seasons, sort of over... Three few, nights? Uh, three weeks, three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you... I know you had to sort of fight season by season um, to get it renewed, or maybe you, maybe, maybe you can tell no, us that's true. Last two. Okay. What's amazing about it is how, uh, how coherent it is and how much is foreshadowed. When you go back and look at episodes, there are little things that happen. There's like a little scene in season one with McNulty and Kima where he makes some remark like, how do you get thrown off the police force? And she says, oh, you keep up the shit you're doing and you'll find a way. And you see all these moments that pay off sometimes like 50 episodes later. Uh, so could you sort of talk about how you... can conceived the series in the beginning, and if you sort of saw this incredible structure it had where you would... Go well, to there are a lot of authors. Um, yeah. uh, stylistically and thematically, uh, Clark, uh, as the director of the pilot, and in conjunction with Bob Colesbury, who was uh, my partner, he was the visual director, and uh, a very visual producer, and uh, they, um, they defined the template visually for what the show would be. In terms of story, um, uh, a lot of credit goes to Ed Burns, who, you know, Ed's, Ed's is real, you know, there's a point at which when you're doing television, the script is the script, and now you've got to go concentrate on how to, how to affect it, how to, how to film it. Um, that moment never comes for Ed. He sits in the writer's room, uh, turning it this way and that, and, and you know, he, he really did uh, uh, obsess over it in a way that you'd have to if you were going to make something that was 60 cohesive hours. Um, there, I mean, there were a lot of... And then, you know, with every season, we brought in more writers who uh, were offering um, their own... You know, some, some of it was, you know, like George Pelicanus, uh, who 
signed on not only as a writer but then became a producer. Um, George's role was to keep us from repeating ourselves. George would sit at the end of the table and say, "That sucks." Or, we did that already, and, and you know he was. It sounds like a negative influence, but it's not. It's the guy saying, you know, come with something better. Um, and so it really is not the. I get a lot of attention because uh, because of that creative credit, which yeah. is which is a WGA function of having written the pilot. But it really does have a lot of parents, and no one I no one person can come up with all the ideas for sixty hours. You know, it, that doesn't happen. So it really it's a room full of people trying to figure out a way to do do good work, and then the stuff goes to set, and you know sometimes a scene that you didn't have as much regard for as you should have or you didn't think it quite came you know the actors will bring something that, a dynamic you weren't even anticipating and other times um, they just kill your best shit <laughs> <laughs> no, I just could, had to say it uh, <laughs> it was the only, only the only debate there in my mind was who I was going to look at <laughs> um, no but I mean the set is its own animal and, and yeah. things happen and it's you know film is film is collaborative and you know, if you want total control over a story, uh, write it on paper. Because yeah. film is, is a bunch of people all trying to figure their way home. Yeah. So, uh, Clark, what was your approach in directing the pilot? Because a lot of the, the, sty- the unusual or unique style of the, of the show is, is that sort of there in the beginning. It's, it's well, something the bard said, I mean, David, sorry, you can mixed up with <laughs> Something David said early in the process that really resonated with me was that uh, the business model that these kids had for running their drug corners and the personalities that went with those business models and the, and the, the work that went into it, I think that's something that set this apart from the get-go, that it was really not just another you know, guys or kids holding their guns that way. Uh, and also the... Uh, Dave touched on the visual style of it. We, we talked about how to approach the thing that was different. Not we weren't, that we were trying to be different than homicide, but that this was different from the homicide because these cops sit back and watch from a long lens. Right. And so they see the, the people that we're talking about up very close, but they're not in close proximity. So that's how the whole thing for me started was how to approach it was uh, from that perspective, you know, from way on top of a church with binoculars and and bubbles with the hat, and you know all that kind of stuff, where we're communicating, but from a distance. God, you make it sound like you had a plan. I know. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I want to open up to the actors, sort of how much you knew, at the, ask you how much you knew at the beginning about sort of what the overall arc of your characters would be, because we. Uh, okay, you, you'll start. It's wonderful to hear him talk about this Dickensian piece and, and the Shakespearean piece. I didn't use Dickensian. I know you did. Or Shakespearean. But like when you're, when you're sitting there on, on Friday, <clears throat> And you know you're supposed to be shooting on Monday, and the script still hasn't come. <laughs> you're like wondering what the hell's going on. So um, it's a uh, wanted to make that having, shit having having any idea about how the arc went. <laughs> it was it was on the moment, and it was it, as an actor, it's good because you're in the moment. <laughs> Sometimes on the edge. <laughs> well, I mean, we wouldn't tell people outcomes purposely, yeah, right. even if we because uh, I mean, we knew, you know, what we were headed towards, and. and you know, it, it, it's hard enough to to be an actor without being told the future. You know, that's that's 
you know, that, that seems almost an unfair burden. Well, not even, not even back yet. It wasn't even really about in the moment. It was like, sometimes it was ahead of the moment. I, I'm getting sick of you guys blowing smoke up this guy's ass so much, but <laughs> I'm not. It was uh, sometimes it was uncanny, like the crystal ball he would have, like stuff, for instance, that was going on in the mayor's office when we were shooting the fu- the final season that actually happened after. The, you know, yeah, he had, really these guys had yeah, written yeah, about it. Yeah. And, and we're going, well, damn, I wish we could air these things tomorrow right. instead of like yeah. six months from now because that shit just happened. The best one of that was uh, after season two, the grain pier. That really was the CXS grain pier in, in Baltimore. It really had been damaged. It really needed to be restored if there were going to be grain ships again in Baltimore. And within six to eight months of us airing that season, it had been purchased, and now it's condos. I mean, like, you know... That hadn't happened when we wrote it, so that was that was weird. And I remember in uh, the third year, they never tell you; they, they would never tell you the arc. And the beginning of well, most of that season, I was chasing a gun, Correct. and uh, and every script it was like, "Yeah, good morning." You know, where's the gun? Where's the gun? So, <laughs> you know, and, and these guys had all these great storylines and everything. And, uh, you flip through and. Uh, Fucking gun <laughs> I just got so frustrated, so frustrated, so frustrated, and then I realized that that was exactly what was happening with Bunk. So uh, they kind of anticipated that with me. Oh, we and, did uh, that with you and, and, and then George. Yeah, we did that with you and Dominic. So there with uh, Dominic and I. I remember Dominic was like, I don't know what the fuck is going on here, Seth. We're sitting around. I mean, we're not doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we're not doing nothing. It's like. You call your agent, call your agent. So he's you know, like, yeah, um, yeah, I don't, you know what I mean? I'm not just happy to be here. It's like, you know, Steinbrenner buying up the best players, sit him on the end of the bench. I want to play, man. I want to play. <laughs> he's like, well, that frustration is good for the- Well, fuck your frustration. <laughs> and then they shoot the scene of, you know, that was are season- we getting the desk in the office or out of the office? <laughs> that was season two, right. and, and all of their shots were, they were being like dumped onto surveillance in the port story. And, and we were headed towards their rebellion, towards them the season three going yeah. their separate ways. And, but, yeah, the, the calls that came in with each successive script. Can we talk for a second about the vindictive nature of the writing room? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to go back where, where he cut his teeth on homicide, yeah. where you'd be going through personal problems in your personal life, like a messy divorce yeah. in my case, yeah. and they would jump on that shit and it would be in a script. So he honed, that, <laughs> he honed that, and they would use the scripts to punish us. Like, you know, if you weren't hitting your mark or saying a line exactly as scripted, you drop a comma here and there, it would be reflected. The trouble you- with cannibals is you never know who they're going to bite next. Because <laughs> last season, six, six seasons of Homicide, I went through a divorce, and oh, okay, I, told, yeah, yeah. I told the story about how, you, you know, everything... Everything fucks you up when you're getting divorced. It's like, who's going to get the spatula? And I, like, I made a joke about the spatula. All of a sudden, I, I'm reading the script, and, and there's G- G- Peter Garrity walking around with a spatula. See? And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, Who you did know, get that spatula? Are you still working on it? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but, I mean, I, the only thing I should say is um, about clockers, because you mentioned it. Yeah. Um, I read that book, and, I mean, I, I, Richard, I, I think that, you know, not to take any... Have you all bought Lush Life? Those of you that haven't, it's not right. Um, but, so I'm, I'm not just... I'm not trying to diss the current book. I know you've I know, I know you got a bookstore full of them. I'm just saying, when I read that, I felt like, 
fuck, everything I knew as a police reporter, this guy had gotten to and had, had turned it into literature. And, and it was the, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was like he was doing for the, the, the inner, inner city drug epidemic what Steinbeck had done for the, um, for the Dust Bowl. I mean, it was just this, the whole diaspora was there in, in, in the book. And the one thing that had incredible power to me, there were two things, one of which was the split point of view. Sometimes you were with the cops, sometimes you were with strike. And, and, and the dynamic of that was so powerful that that was in my head when, when we started working on The Wire. Just the idea of if I go back and forth from the street, yeah. you know, or, and ultimately became from the street to the city hall to the, you know, wherever, you know, if I just keep going back and forth over the same ground from different POVs, um, something good can happen. Yeah. Um, but the other thing was, there were small characters in that book. That book had such breath to it. You know, I still remember the kid Homer. I still remember the kid Homer uh, on the bench who, you know, barely a handful of pages. But it was so evocative of, the, of this kid who was sort of growing up in this, in this world. You know, not, not a major character, not something. But it just, so the idea that all the characters in this thing, if you bring somebody on, to the wire, you needed to service them as a, as a complete person. That was important. How much are you writing, Richard? And, and this sort of leads to a question for you, David, is sort of reporting, going out and observing and listening to real people. Of course, one of the great things about the show is the slang and the, the sort of authenticity of, of the dialogue. For you, is a lot of writing as a novelist, does it come from just going out and observing, reporting in a way? Well, you know, it's like God's a first-rate novelist. <laughs> Some, and sometimes he's a second-rate novelist, you know, when it, everything is too on the money out there. But yeah. I don't know. I, when I go out there, it's like, you know, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself. Just get out in the world. It's a big world. You don't have to constantly write about, you know, how your Thanksgiving vacation, you were so lonely when you were a freshman in college and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> and I, I just, you know, I grew, I grew up in a housing project at, you know, like the golden era of housing projects, which were the 1950s. I mean, there, you've never seen anything in this country so racially mixed, so religiously mixed, uh, generationally mixed. And, you know, that's where I'm from. And that's where I, uh, I find myself going back to. And I went to a housing project. I don't even know if I'm answering your question now. I'm sort of losing track. But I remember in 1985, I went back to a housing project in Jersey City. I hadn't been in a project for 20 years. And it was a tiger cage. I didn't even recognize the bricks. And I, I felt like it scared me so badly. But sometimes, you know, the bird moves to the snake. You know, I, I just had to go back. I had to figure it out. And it's, it's like there was something calling me, you know. And that's been clockers, freedom land, whatever. But I think what the wire has done, that I stayed very much on trench eye level. You know, it was like, it was like a, the Battle of the Somme. I mean, never went into the general's tents. And I think with the wire and, and the, 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 the wonder of the wire is, man, you go f- from, from the most down-low little midget sociopath, hard luck case kid to the State Assembly of Maryland, you know, in five minutes. And it never, not, it never loses its sense. When I did the thing with the alter, alternating uh, points of view, like I had a thick, dense book, and I thought, well, if I keep swinging A B A B, you know, it, it'll be an easier read, you know. But just you know, David just took took that to town, you know. And I mean, I, you know, everybody uses the word Dickensian, you know. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, David never said... I mean, Dickens was used a lot in reviews, but you... The only time we... We mocked actually, it. What? We mocked it. You mocked it with uh, turning Charles Dickens into a slang for... Well, that was... Graham Dickens, he's Fenster. That's all I mean. Yeah. Uh, nobody remembers that. Everybody <laughs> remembers that, yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of authenticity, I want to ask the actors to talk about what they, you got out of being in Baltimore. And the, the show is set there. It's so about the specific city as you know, is made clear by this great montage at the end of uh, season five. But could you talk about sort of your experience, experiences being, you know, being in Baltimore making this, sort of what you learned about the city and then what that gave to your performances? I, I, uh, I fell in love with the people. Uh, I'm originally from New Orleans, and it reminded me of uh, home. It was kind of like a church on every corner and a bar on every other. And... Uh, <laughs> and um, the people, you know... Uh, Everybody's very, missing a finger or a tooth or both. Yes. <laughs> and, and they're very... And a very... A, a real sense of community and struggle, no matter what. Um, you know, I, I remember the people in McCullough Homes when I first got there. There's a particular club called Choices that I would love to go to, like, at 4 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and, and you know, everybody was like, what are you doing here? But it was... Oh, wait, Richard just heard that and went, that's a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> Choices? Choices. After hours. <laughs> Is that the one where you had to wear black leather and a motorcycle? Whoa! <laughs> no, no, John was at that one. Um, but it was, and they have this Baltimore bounce that it's really, it's good. Um, but I, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the people. And then we also had a great time. You know, it was, we looked forward to, you know, going there every year. And uh, we partied a lot and all. And for my research, I really was influenced uh, by uh, this one uh, sergeant in the homicide, uh, uh, Sergeant Massey, who was great um, interrogator. And he was a student of human behavior. And that was the thing that it just, that really got to me. I, I saw how he would do interrogations and all, and it, I, there was a great admiration for that. And I, I talked to him every once in a while, and, you know, he really prided himself on how, you know, how to walk into a room and read someone and come up with all these things. Um, and I know what to do and not to do when I get in the box, if I get in the box. But, and so I really appreciated the research of learning from these cops that they especially homicide detectives, that they were real students of human behavior. And that's the thing that makes it interesting for me as an actor, you know, because that's what we do. And I was really interested in it. And, I, and I, would, I always said to them, I would love to become an investigator if I didn't have to walk the beat, if I could just mm-hmm. hop over all of that stuff, all the dangerous <laughs> stuff. And I remember this one particular night, uh, they were called to shock trauma, I think it is. And um, it, was, it was a classic scene. They had called them, and the guys walked in, and they said, and it was... This kid had been shot a couple of times, and he's, you know, all these tubes are in him, and they said, wait a minute, you know, this, he's not dead, you know, How, you called homicide, the kid's not dead, and they said, well, it looks, he was shot like 11 times, and they had this argument outside, and I was like, the kid is like right there, <laughs> and, and I just, and it was, and it was kind of like that kind of, that was, uh, that was my first taste of the real wire, you know. So, uh, these, they were arguing over the bed of like, don't call us, we're homicide. When he dies, then you call us. <laughs> so that, that was my introduction into the world, and, and I've, I've loved it ever since. 
Can I just add something about, about something he just said? It's like, the other thing with running with people like that is just you, you pick up language like crazy. You don't, you know, you're not Margaret Mead with a pith helmet, and, you know. But it's like that, that very scene. I had an experience. It's like where there's this cop it's where, you know, there's a kid who's got like this much life in him left. And he says, all they said is um, four lines. Uh, likely, wobbling, ag assault, call me. <laughs> That's great. Right. Sad. Sad way to break it down. Well, I read the story that where you were down visiting Keeper. David in, in Baltimore and heard, like, picked up this one little piece, this, you know, line, and he knew you knew that. I knew he picked it up. Oh uh, yeah, that story. <laughs> um, Richard came down to research a case as part of the research he was doing for Freedom Land, and because uh, he's Richard Price, I had to show him, you know, show him my shit. So I was working on the corner <laughs> then, and we drove around the neighborhood where we were doing the corner. And Gary McCullough. Um, uh, got in the car and I was talking to Gary and Gary was real high and he used a phrase that's a very common Baltimore phrase when you're saying somebody is um, is you know somebody's a little bit special or is, is amusing you he called me an apple scrapple and I saw uh, I saw Richard's like just perk up a little bit in the front seat <laughs> and then after Gary got out of the car about five minutes later you know like what I'm thinking is Fuck now, Price has Apple Scrapple. And he, might, he might publish before me, or you know. I, I was just going to write a song called "Do the Apple Scrapple." <laughs> but you know, Gary got out of the car after about five minutes, and, and the first thing he see turned to me went, "Apple Scrapple, that's a keeper." You know. So, <laughs> so I mean, it, it is. It's very. It's very. Uh, it's. It, you become. Um, you just become greedy for for these moments that. Are, are idiosyncratic that, that, you, that you couldn't make up if you sat there, you know, a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters. You, you, you need to actually go out on the street and hear something. I think, I think what made it interesting in that sense is uh, shows that shoot in Los Angeles, for instance, people get in their cars and they drive to and fro. But in Baltimore, you can't help but be around everybody. You can't help but just hear everything that's happening. Um, and and it, it informs how you play people. It informs how, you, how these guys write, and it makes a big difference between some of those some of those uh, L.A.-based shows because they're not rooted on the, on the street. You know what I want to know about? I want to know whatever an actor is doing, and no matter how well they're doing it, they want to do the other thing. Talk, talk to me about that. I've always, this is fascinating. Why do you want to jump out of a bag on me, man? I just want to know about This is like, no, it's really fascinating. Okay. If they're yeah. playing Heartbreak is this going back episode, to that? Is this going back to that, the... the the, the I'm not going anywhere. Okay. That's an open-ended question. Right. It's like Don't this be so on defensive. stage as well, you know. It's, it's like this you know, you when, when you work, when you dress. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, if they're playing Heartbreak every episode, if they're having, because you know, The Wire was a show where actors would be fallow for a little bit, and then the story would come around to them, and then they would have, and there'd be moments where a guy's playing dead-on comedy, and it's just killing. You know, it's like comedy is ineffable. How, you know, timing is. How comedy happens, I'm never quite sure. Even if you write the line right. and you think it might be funny, maybe, maybe not. Once it gets, you know, but it, and and the guy's killing the, he, the, the turn, and, and he's like, nothing. My character's not going anywhere. He's not growing. He's not, you know, there's no angst. You know, he should have a woman. He should have a very attractive woman. Um, and then if he's if he's you know if it's all angst and and and, and high theater and high drama, it's you know, where's the lighter side of me? Uh, it's really fascinating. I think, but, but well, it's well, like, I think a, it like a marriage. In the wire. It's like a marriage. I think it happened in The Wire because we were so, uh, 
you know, separated the stories, that you became fans mm-hmm. of the other storyline. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you know, I didn't have a scene with most people on the show. That's true. And yeah, so, yeah, and you'd see. Other <laughs> <laughs> no, you'd see other people doing shit, and you go, "Damn, yeah, yeah, you're good. like, wow, man, I want to, I want to work with Snoop." You know, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, how's my hair? You know, it's like. And, and, but we became fans of the other storylines. At least for me, man, the other stories. I, I just remember, you know, watching. I would. I remember watching the kids uh, in in school. You know, in the fourth season, I was just amazed. You know, uh, you know, especially with me. Then I had the added thing of like, wow, I don't even get to be in a detail room. I'm going to be stuck here in the cubicle. So you were talking about him, weren't you? Yeah, he was. That's <laughs> it. I knew he was I just want to see you got the, the, the most bitter quickest. Um, <laughs> I did, but it's <laughs> Well, Seth, you got to do a little bit of everything. You were sort of a great comedy team with Herc. I mean, when you, know, when you guys were paired up. And, and you had anger scenes. You had, you had, I mean, what's great about the characters over the whole arcs, you know, the five seasons, is that there's so many different sides. I mean, yeah. And that, there's no, like, totally virtuous characters. Everybody's, a, you know, at least a bit of... An asshole. No, at that, some point, that, another, was another. A, that was a fantastic part of playing the role. It would have been, it would have been nice to be clued into to that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the whole interest of well, you know, collaboration. Bitter, bitter. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you trust the talent. Can you guys leave? Can you guys <laughs> go? <laughs> <out with> the <laughs> group therapy. You know, we're going to But um, but I, but it was it was one of the things I think Wendell I think Wendell definitely hit it on the head. When you're saying, you know, why, why does the actor always want to do the other thing? Is because you're seeing, you know, what's going on on the other side of the street that you're not on the set for, and it looks like so much fun that you want to be a part of it. And um, I, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to the show that, that, like you say, Carver was able to kind of, you know, touch a little bit of each of each thing. You know, there was such a great arc to the character, and there's such great growth with it that I was, you know, and right at the time when I was feeling like I'm a fucking comedic relief again. That's it. <laughs> You know, the guy had some more depth revealed. And right at the yeah. time, was like, I'm tired of screaming at people. You know, the guy had quiet moments. And right. I was like, well, this is, this is kind of brilliant. And I'm wondering if, uh, you know, is it really that, as you were asking before, do you see the, the whole outlay of a five-year journey of every character, of all these hundred or whatevers? Or are you, I, are you getting it from seeing the, what the actors are bringing on the set and other writers who come into the room and things that they bring to the table that you didn't necessarily have. And, you know... There is some biofeedback. We're watching the dailies and saying, we should play with that, or this right. guy's showing us something here. Yeah. There is yeah. biofeedback. Puppeteers up there above the set. <laughs> <laughs> but nothing was funnier than, than, than the, the Dom Lombardozzi, Seth Gilliam rebellion of, of 2006. <laughs> of, of, we want to be something other than comic relief. You know, I, you know, and Dom, you know, I have other sides to my character. <laughs> it was like, these guys, I mean, you know, credit, credit comedy for what it is, because comedy is hard. Like, you, you plan the drama. You yeah. plan the tragedy. You think about the tragedy. You argue about the tragedy. The tragedy has everybody worrying about it from ten sides. Comedy, it's like, how it happens, I'm, I still don't know. And yet, everything we would give to Herc and Carver... You know, it was just, it was poetry. And the timing was just dead on. And it was like being told by, like, you know, by, like, Bugs Bunny. And he doesn't want to work with Elmer Fudd anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like, who are you? <laughs> are you Bugs? I'm tired of this guy with the, with the 
fucking lisp in the shotgun. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to do Shakespeare. <laughs> and, you know, I, I would, I would, um, I, I got to know Dominic uh, Lombardozzi a little bit outside of the wire, and I always wanted to say, well, you guys are like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, <laughs> but I was afraid he's going to say, I don't even look Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> He's not here to defend himself. <laughs> and even if he were, he'd he's still have said Actually, it would be worse if he were here. <laughs> We'd all gang up on him. I thought it was interesting in, this, um, in the thing that you play, that you know, one of his favorite moments is the thing with the grandmother, because at that point he was, he was, he was so precious about that because he just thought, ah, I'm just fucking the same thing, you know, I'm the butt of the joke, the butt of the joke, now I get to show I have some heart. And I think um, you know, he, he says that, and I wonder... Do you, do you look over all the other moments that you've had in the course of the show where you've actually been able to do that? Or was that the first time that you saw, okay, they trust me enough to show that I'm not just this one kind of guy? And I think that happens a lot with actors, especially on a, on a TV show where you're not really you know, sure of where the character's going to go. And you wonder, am I going to have the opportunity to show the, the three-dimensional yeah. well, you know, from thing? From the writing point of view, you're, you're terrified of stereotype. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point, we were playing him as somebody who was totally committed to the to the, the sort of the mediocrity of the drug war. That, right. was, that was where Herc was in the beginning of the show. And at some point, you start watching the scenes and you start, well, there's got to be something more to him because we are, you know, we're constructing a stereotype. And um, there were moments uh, where you want, um, you want to round the character out because A, the character deserves it, but B, the whole world, you know, if people start showing themselves two-dimensional, the whole world falls apart. Right. So you're watching all the characters and saying, are we lean, you know... Um, uh, one of the things we, with you early on, you got a note from, I think, Ed that I didn't agree with early on in the first season, which was um, I, I kept writing some profanity in for you, for your character. Because I wanted him to, you know, there was something so professorial about, about Lester Freeman that I wanted him to still be a cop. Yeah, he spent 13 years and four months in the <laughs> pawn shop unit, but I wanted it, I wanted it to be, and, and when you went out, uh, on the raids, I wanted you to behave like a cop. The mm. first raids in, in the projects, the ones that don't go anywhere, and and I sort of had to, I actually had to pull Ed up because Ed was, I think, leaning too hard towards the things he admired about the Freeman character, mm. and I wanted him to still be in the realm of Baltimore cop. So you would come to me and say, "Well, Ed said I really shouldn't curse this much." I'm like, "Curse, <laughs> <laughs> throw it out there." Well, yeah, throw I, the I, I, kind, I kind of like. That that he wasn't uh, so stuck in the, in the into the profanity. Um, I think that over time that that that's what made him different from all of the other all of the other uh, uh, detectives that were there. Is that his the way he used the language? Right. In, in those, those those first couple of seasons, I had all that exposition trying to explain exactly how exactly. to set up uh, set up uh, uh, the wire, mm-hmm. how this works, how that works. You know, so. Um, it seemed that it seemed to make sense that if he's going to be the instructor, that that's what he that that's the, you know, well. That, there was a rigor to how he used profanity because mm. th- there would be whole tracks where you know it would be the King's English, and then it would be you know uh, the line the line that you gave Daniels about about you know if I can't suck no titty. Oh, yes, if I can't, I don't want to go to a dance and not be able to rub no titty. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, well, that's not like, profanity. And it, and <laughs> that's just titties. <laughs> you know, Talk to George but, Carlin. That's one of the seven <laughs> words. There were no but, motherfuckers. 
Did I say motherfucker but, once? But you delivered that to your commanding officer. So it was like, like you know, while you're talking to subordinates, you're explaining things, you know, declaratively, and then you know, choose your moments. Yeah. And, yes. and that was, you know, whereas a lot of a lot of the characters, we there. Every moment was the moment for profanity. So. <laughs> but, Clark, I, did, I, I wanted to ask you about season five, because it's really interesting what happens to your character when you get drawn into... Because Lester is sort of the steadiest character and the, maybe the closest thing... You know, well, I, was, I, was, I was upset and, about and that to begin with. What, the steadiness? Or no, the, that, or that he was going to go... That I viewed him as becoming corrupt. You were upset about being drawn into yeah, yeah. Melty's scheme? But then... Um, you know, it, it, it made... That's what rounded the character out. <laughs> no, it was David. That's what rounded the character out, is that, you know, it, it, you got to do the right thing. You know, and rather than it being looked at as, as, uh, as Freeman being taken on, on McNulty's trip, you know, I think that we worked that right. Sometimes I think that, you know, back in the 70s or 60s, people would get up in the street and would, and would, would demonstrate and their voices would be heard and something would be done. You know, in the year 2000, I find Americans being really apathetic. I don't think wow. that, that, you know, that, 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 that... Speak for yourself. No, I, I don't think I'm speaking for myself. I think there's a lot of stuff out there that people should be talking about, but for some reason, we're not. And that gave me a chance for, to, to, to love Freeman... You know, to, to say the law is not working, but we've got to get this job done, so by any means necessary. Yeah. You know, so somewhere around there, I enjoyed, uh, well, the ag- against, is, against my protest, you know, I enjoyed uh, uh, where Freeman you was did, going. We did, and you got the girl. And I got the girl. <laughs> we wanted the girl in four, you know, but we got her in five, so. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the moment where... Um, there was a moment where the writers were all bouncing around the room looking at Daly's was when uh, uh, Bunk calls you into the interrogation room to set McNulty straight, and instead you go the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was delightful for us. We felt like we had, we had seeded that in your backstory. You know, you had the perfect opportunity to make the case and not call in the, 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 right. the pawn shop, and you ended up, yeah. you know, you, you did not use the fence in the case, and you ended up burning your whole career yeah, right. on, on some principle. So we felt like, although it was an outrageous conceit, um, we did feel as if uh, there's something in the back of Lester Freeman that, yes. you know, yeah. and, and, and certainly... Well, yeah, and, and I think you, you, you did set that up in that first one with the, with the, uh, the, murder, uh, the murder theft. Um, and, but we never got back to that, which, I mean, and it took me a long time to understand it was going to be season five before we see the integrity of, 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 um, of this man and how far he will go, you know. Well, there's also, you know. He's the guy I want to be when I grow up, you know. He's <laughs> definitely the kind I want to be when I grow up. Sometimes we don't get back to it at all. We just have to say it, talk about it on the DVD. <laughs> it's not even in the movie. We just make it up afterwards. And when are we doing that movie? Yes, uh, when are we doing the movie? <laughs> That's such a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> All you guys have to do is think of a great idea and then write it up. I'll put my name on it. I'll send it to the WGA. Okay. I can't think of a worse idea than doing Wire the movie. <laughs> uh, ex- except for Homicide the movie. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the clock we talk- is the movie. We were talking about characters uh, and, you know, kind of the three-dimensional characters. 
The thing I love about the show also is this: almost with every character, there's a moment that you remember out of all the seasons, you know, and um, and it, it, that's really a, a, a collaboration between the writers developing the characters, the actors developing the characters, and then the synergy and that magic that happens on, you know, on the uh, on the set. You know, it, I, I remember one of my favorite one of my favorite moments is you know uh, between Carver and Randy in the hospital, and mm-hmm. you know when he walks away, what are you going to do now? So I, go, I mean that's mm-hmm. it's brilliant. You know, it's a, it's a brilliant moment. There's you know all those little things like that that you always remember. You know, and uh, and then seeing you at the end get the girl. You know, and. Um, I'm still trying to figure out yours. Yeah, I know you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but 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 as as actors, we spend most of our careers uh, getting the script and trying to elevate it, trying to make sense of it somehow, trying to figure out how we're going to perform the shit. It's rare that you get a chance. Did you hear that? Yeah, I know. I know. I just want to use the word elevate. And, and but it's rare that we get a chance to 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 have the warm embrace of such brilliant pros. As was wow. uh, offered up on this. See, we didn't wait for the Backed punchline. Backed into that one. So, so my point is, that usually we spend a lot of time trying to make a, a, a Sal's uh, ear out of Gilligan's Island or some. We've come a lo- we've come a long way because Clark and I go back to uh, the dawn of time of television, and uh, my first script that I wrote, uh, my second script that I wrote, the first one that where you were a major character in Scene of the Crime, there was a line that Clark didn't want to say. With good reason, probably. I can't remember, but probably. Because I'm sure you were right. Um, <laughs> and this motherfucker, this, he waited. It was the last scene of the day, and he kept saying the line wrong until the sun went down. And then when we had no light left, he said, it, he said the line perfect. I learned that from Dennis Hopper. In, 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 uh, <laughs> you know. We've come a long way, We've haven't we? a long way. Now this, I'm now this, I'm beaten into to a submission. Far. Don't hurt me, David. I'll say whatever you want me to say. <laughs> this far, <laughs> you guys don't forget a thing. Do you? Not a thing. No. no by the way, um, I forget nothing. I forget nothing. <laughs> Forgive less. I want to ask you about Clark about playing Gus Haynes. The performance uh, is great. It, it reminded me a little bit of how comfortable Jason Robards was as the editor in All the President's Men, where it didn't seem like acting at all. It just felt like you'd been in that newsroom forever. Can you talk about? Like what it was like playing that? Well, you seem like a city editor. David, David uh, called me. You, were you drunk when you called me, Cameron? <laughs> no, I was sober. You sober? <laughs> oh, that takes the fun out. And and uh, but uh, started talking to me about the possibility of that, and I said, man, I, of course I want to do that. And he said, now I've, I've kind of modeled this character after myself. <laughs> oh, I, I did not. You did, sir. Maybe you were drunk. You <laughs> I did, did not. And then, You're just making and then, shit up. And then, Bill, <laughs> and then Bill Zorzi, when I came to, uh, to Baltimore to start the, se- the fifth season, Bill Zorzi, because I hadn't been with the show for the middle three seasons. So Bill Zorzi came up to me uh, and said, no, just come to me anytime you want, because I kind of modeled this character after myself. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I felt I was in pretty good hands. I had the bookends of those two, and, and it was a character that was comfortable to play. And uh, I, I like to refer. Did I come up with this phrase? Or was it you? Uh, the patron saint of journalism. I think it yeah, was me. Yeah, I mean, you know, the character was made to represent that which was going away, which was the the ethos of newspaper. I had read uh, and seen the thing about uh, the Tribune buying stuff up a little before this all came about, and and there was something in the L.A. Times I think about it, and it was really important and really interesting to me. So. I was grateful for, for the role. And, and uh, 
But again, like these guys, I thought, oh, I'm gonna come back and mix it up with my boys, and you know, have some. I was in the newsroom all the time. I never saw these guys once. <laughs> but uh, I had my own world. Uh, David, what did that that H. L. Mencken quote that you went, you know, show us? Um, you know, where H. L. Mencken. It's the quote that's up on the wall of the Baltimore Sun. Uh, H. L. Mencken. It's actually in the lobby. In the lobby, where he uh, in says. Real place. As I look back over a misspent life, I find myself more and more convinced that I had done had more fun doing news reporting than in any other enterprise. Like, what did that mean to you, and what did that whole season mean to you? Because you talk about the fun of doing reporting, but you really show very clearly the problems with newspapers. Well, I mean, listen, the, 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 we didn't do 10 episodes so that I could go down memory lane. It wasn't, it wasn't about that. <laughs> um, it was, there was the opportunity to revisit some of the things that, that Bill Zorzi and I loved about being newspaper. But... Um, what it really was about was Dakota to the Wire, which was if we got anything right about the first four seasons where we discussed uh, you know, the fraud of the drug war, the death of the working class, the political infrastructure's inability to reform itself, um, the lie behind equality of opportunity, all those things, I mean, there's something very wonderfully meta about it. All of those things got very little attention from the mainstream press. We never made it off the entertainment pages for those four seasons. The fifth season, we asked the question, if we got all any of that right, what is it that we're paying attention to as a society? What are we not? What are we, what are we, what are we uh, indulging ourselves by paying attention to and what are we ignoring? And what are we simplifying? And, and, and you know, the problems are complex. Um, and if you can't shape them into something that's a three-part series that's gonna convince some prize committee somewhere to hand you a trinket, what, you know, why are we doing it? I mean, you know, journalism on, in my time went from being a very open-ended and ambitious sort of post-Watergate moment of, you know, guys who were supposed to go get business degrees and engineering degrees were going to journalism school and thinking this is, this is the way to be relevant. Um, and it was becoming a very practiced art of self-absorption. I mean, it really was. And this is before the Internet started kicking the shit out of newspapers. So... All the things we depicted happening in Baltimore in the first four seasons really happened. I mean, not, not some of the dramatics that we showed, but the mayor really did cook the stats to become governor. Uh, no Child Left Behind really did cheat the test scores so that uh, the school system could look good and get funding. Um, politically uh, sensitive prosecutions really were undercut by vaccines, back, uh, back channel maneuvering. Backs all, were corrupt. All, all this stuff happened. But you wouldn't know it to read the Baltimore Sun. I mean, it really was a critique of what was, of what was not being addressed. So when we do the last critique, which is, what are we paying attention to? And we critique journalism. You know, it's all fun and games when you're making fun of police officials and, <laughs> and, uh, and mayors and, and, and drug dealers. But God forbid you should say that, that journalism has advocated. And it really has. And, and, and you're seeing the, the... Now you're seeing the tail end of it. Now... The internet has come, and it, 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 it met a paper tiger, which was these newspapers that had been uh, reduced and eviscerated for, for, for decades. Yeah. Um, you know, I took the third buyout from the Baltimore Sun. That was 95. That was before the internet. Um, they're now on their eighth buyout. When I was there, there were 500 reporters and editors. There's now 220. Baltimore's not any smaller. The problems aren't any smaller, but we now have a newspaper that doesn't matter. At, at the risk of uh, having the term Dickinsonian, how do you say it? Dickens, Dickinsonian? Dickensian. Yeah. Dickinsonian. Uh, hurled Dickinsonian. At me, hurled at me. Uh, 
in the initial uh, season, there was those cops way up there looking from a distance and, and detached. And in the fifth season, there was the, the, the fifth estate, the, the media just looking uh, and being detached and writing about a great story and getting, uh, trying to get the great story but not having an emotional tie to it. In the, in the meantime, these guys are drenched in blood. And, and they, these guys are sucked into it on the street. So that to me was an interesting thing because the last, the tail end, the fifth season is us in the newsroom just looking out there going, like the fire, some shameful shit, you know, just shameful up there shit. watching from way up there. Yeah. So it sort of, to me, it came full yeah. circle in that yeah. sense. And, of course, one thing that you think when you're watching that last season is that you've been able to address things in the show that you couldn't address, uh, that newspapers weren't addressing, you know, just... I mean, it's hard. It, 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 I don't say this stuff about newspapers with any sense of schadenfreude. No, hey, yeah. I got out. Yeah. Fuck them. It's not that. Yeah. I have friends who still work in, in newspaper. Uh, you know, some of them are taking a buyout uh, this Friday. Hmm. Uh, two or three of them who are still at the Sun. It's heartbreaking because I don't know how you. I don't know how you manage to be anything other than a moneyed ol- oligarchy without a yeah. aggressive and um, uh, surly press. And, you know, it's, it's not the time to be losing, you know. And anyone who thinks the Internet's going to replace it. Um, I don't run into a lot of Internet reporters at council meetings or in courthouses or, mm-hmm. you know, they're not out in Fallujah telling you what the Marines are doing. They're, you know, the, the Internet is good for commentary. It's the parasite, and it's killing the host. Mm-hmm. And, and the incredible thing, no, no, listen, I use the Internet. It's a wonderful tool, but... There's you know, porn. Don't forget. Porn. I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> you can trade stocks online, and there's porn. That's right. Um, and you can illegally download the wire and, <laughs> and avoid the DVD purchase. That's right. It's good for something. But um, it's you know I don't know where we're going, but it ain't it ain't a good place. Mm. But while, while I was uh, while I was busy channeling Bill Zorzi and David Simon, uh, that. He also had a great respect and, 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 a, and a reverence for that, for that craft. And there was always uh, reporters that had taken the buyout or had moved on to other, other, other uh, uh, like the Post or the Times. or They had moved on. And they would, they would come and do cameos on the show. And it was like rock stars. These guys would like deify them. They'd come there and they'd be going, oh, my God. There's... And we'd be looking, who, what? Yeah. <laughs> it was, but so it was and, every every week there was a little pocket of bad acting, and you had you had to act, <laughs> <laughs> except for Zorzi. Except for Zorzi, admit that Zorzi, Zorzi was good. pulled his way. Zorzi pulled his way. <laughs> but yeah, no, you know, by the way, of all the reason, actors here, there was a reason they were writing, right? That's who had <laughs> who had to envelop a novice from from the streets of Baltimore, somebody who had no business being on TV? How many? Tell the story. You all have stories. You're working with somebody who's never acted before. And you have to envelop them with your craft. You have to put your arms around them and make the scene work. Who was yours? It was the entire season three for, <laughs> for me and Dominic. It's like, oh, these guys are so authentic. Yeah, we just got him around the corner. He's great, right? <laughs> no, he's not great. <laughs> he should go back around the fucking corner. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't have to costume him. <laughs> 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 Clark, who do we make you go up against? Uh, I can't. I can't. <laughs> who didn't you make us go up against? Sometimes um, coming out of the court 
the court stuff, season five, quite a few, uh, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, the stenographers or the, or, oh, or the secretaries. Yeah. Uh, um, it's all the real people at the court. Oh, you know, and, and <laughs> Jay, uh, uh, who's the cop? Who's the cop? Uh, no, not Landsman. Um, Dig- Didario. Didario? Oh, Gary. Oh, Didario. Didario. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on, now. He's young Gary. Oh, I love him. I love him. This, 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 this is the cop that put me on the street the first time with the, uh, the first year with all of the, uh, the sergeants and we're doing the roll arounds and everything. And I have a lot of respect for this guy, right? But now he's sitting opposite me and he's the, he's the bad cop. He's the bad prosecutor. He's the yeah. bad prosecutor. <laughs> and just watching his face act. <laughs> it was he's a lovely cat but like he should he should really be a cop you know and, uh, and uh, you know he had these do you remember <laughs> he had this hang dog face well you did something wrong yes I did <laughs> You know, it was, I'm sorry, it was, I was I was directing that one, and I was trying to get him to eat a ham and cheese sandwich during the scene and maybe diffuse from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where you were, were you? You could have worked you? that You tell me I didn't earn my money. Who did, <laughs> who did you have? I was, actually, I got uh, my mentor, uh, <laughs> Detective Massey, on. The port season. Oh, that's right. He just, all he had to do was get out of the car with Bob. They're taping this, you know. That's good people going to come back. <laughs> no, Massey's cool because he's like this in, 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 the, uh, in the office, too. So he would get out of the car, and he had seen every bad cop show. So you'd get out of the car, and you'd come on and... <laughs> they say cut. They like, uh, you know, uh, yeah, detective, just just get out the car and just you know hit your mark and say, oh yeah, oh I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, okay. They say action. <laughs> and then eventually, I think they just cut him. They saw you saw this on screen. That was it. <laughs> he rocked out of his seat. And <laughs> I think I think mine was uh, one of your one of your patron saints. Uh, I had to walk by him. I had a pound and a half of dialogue, and he was eating some cottage cheese. What was that guy? Oh, Carl Shop. Yeah. One of the great reporters guy. at the Sun. Fantastic reporter retired. with pen and ink. And he was saying a line that he had said. To, in, it was one of his most famous moments, the Baltimore Sun, which was uh-huh. uh, Carl was always eating. He was always on a diet, and he was eating a, a cottage cheese lunch. And somebody walked past him, and he, just, he was like looking at the cottage cheese, and he just went, fuck, fuck, fucking fuck. <laughs> and it was, like, it was so Carl that it like was on the wall as a wall quote. So we tried to reenact the moment. We tried. Right. Take 16, take 17. <laughs> but in defense of Gary Diodero, I will say this. I worked on his shift when I was writing Homicide, when I was writing the book. He was the shift commander in charge. And he was playing the actual Gary Diodero. That's who he was. Wow. So all he was doing was being the cat he is. Yeah. And he sings, a, he does a Frank Sinatra thing. And we should have had him sing it. He actually, he actually can sing. Yeah. yeah. It's unbelievable. The two of you... Yeah, it so you, been a are moment. you suggesting we should get sort of musical yeah. career together? <laughs> <laughs> a missed opportunity that we didn't go musical at that moment. You, the two of you didn't break into song. There were wonderful moments where you know real life came into the fictional. One of my favorite moments was we had finished the scene in the McCullough Homes on the sofa on the couch. We were going to lunch and uh, and Dominic uh, West and I were walking across the courtyard, and so the kids were sitting on the on the couch, and he said, "I thought." I thought we just did this scene. And I said, 
Uh, no, those are the real kids. <laughs> and they were. They, I mean, they were. We would go to lunch, and they would come back to the couch and start slinging. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, the and, actors didn't know a lot of what happened with the locations department, of oh, going boy. up to the corner and saying, we're going to be shooting here until 1, and then we're going to be moving three blocks over there, so if you could move your thing over there, and then you can come back after 1 o'clock. And... The, the, the level of cooperation that we got was... Initially. Like, what? They get tired of it after a while. I'm a little well, they so. get a little cranky. But then we change neighborhoods. But hey, no, we how about the one where we, uh, in the pilot, or the first or second one, when uh, Adam Laws, we scouted this house, this row house, and then we came back two weeks later, shoot, the row house was gone. <laughs> it's just, it's just a hole between two buildings. It's like, oh, okay, well. Good thing these houses all look the same. Knock on that door. <laughs> and another one, of these, you talk about actors that we had to work with that we uh, had, had problems with. We had a, a, a one that involved furniture. We, they, they tore all the towers down. They blew them all up. They imploded most of them. When we were doing the pilot, we actually shot the, the towers at, at an old folks' home. And the guys were hurling uh, stuff down yeah. at you guys, TVs and shit. And they are hurling all this stuff down. And it's going pretty good. And we're getting most of the scene. And then after a while, I'm starting to notice. Now, mind you, this is an old folks home. Remember that. I'm starting to notice that some of the stuff that was raining down wasn't the same in take one. as in. There, was real, there was real people throwing real shit down. <laughs> it's an old folks home. <laughs> it's a tough a town. Fridge, a little fridge it's a tough down. town. <laughs> My town is a tough town. On that same set, uh, I'm standing there waiting for someone to come up, and this man comes on up and he says, um, I'm looking for David Simon. I said, uh, Uh-oh. he's over there. Right? <laughs> I'm standing there using my name. Using your name? I don't know what you're talking about. He said, uh, my name is uh, Bodie Boxdale. I said, <laughs> <laughs> you got my attention. <laughs> and David's over there. <laughs> And he was, he was doing this thing where he walks, Bodie, the real Bodie walks yeah. like this, because he's on uh, uh, wooden legs. Yeah, wooden legs. Yeah. But two wooden legs. He, he's I thought he side. was coming at me. No, so he's, he's always moving, which is really unnerving. Yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> he had and just gotten out of the slams yeah, that morning. He just had, yeah. I didn't know he was out when I used him. <laughs> <laughs> um, Otherwise, you wouldn't you would use some other names. You know, Stanley. There, let me tell you, I'll have to give you... Producers 101, I'll give you a little hint here. Oh, thank for when, you. For when you reach my level. Wow. In this <laughs> I can only wow. There's a solution to this problem. What wow. do you think it is? I have no idea, but I'll know when I reach your level. <laughs> <laughs> you put him in the movie. That's, yeah. Oh, there you go. Uh, Just don't put him uh, opposite me. He, 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 had, a, he had a few lines. He, he was the guy. Well, you learn that in labor history. If, if something's a threat, offer it a job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say The Wire is like the only set you know, is it real, is it live, or is it Memorex? It's the only movie set where we're on a street in East Baltimore, and from around the corner we hear gunshots. Now, your normal reaction is to go like that, and everybody's going, and they're turning pages. (laughs) (laughs) There was the guy that staggered into set who had been shot Mm. uh, in season three. Yeah. You know, David, there was something I, I, I've, I've wanted to ask you for a while Uh-oh. about about Uh-oh. the writing. There was um, there's a scene that you had where is it too late to make you? No, no. <laughs> Remember <laughs> McNulty's Dream Jazz? Oh yeah, yes. thing. <laughs> what was can you can you what was that about? There was just like a scene where McNulty was dreaming, 
and he was in a jazz club and various characters. There was no jazz the, club. It was a theater. It was, it was a, theater. a theater. And, and there were got, like a, uh, there were a, a we trio had a, or? Yeah, we had a, we had a, it was to begin the last episode. <laughs> we had a drunken dream by McNulty that began it. We, we didn't realize that the Sopranos were going to go there and do it so much better. So thank God uh, <laughs> we, were, we were told, maybe this isn't working by HBO. It was one of the great notes they gave us. And we killed the sequence. But in that sequence, you almost saw everybody from the whole first season. Was yeah. Like, like, people who were dead. Yeah, they were all stink in the dream. Yeah, they were all in the dream at certain points. And his kids, his wife, his ex-wife. Um, and we, we constructed that dream as a dream. And then had him wake up in a cold sweat, and then we were going to begin the last episode. But it was a musical. It was really ardent. But it was, yeah, it was like. But it was a musical. Yeah. Buck was on a clarinet or something. Yeah. Was, Freeman was on a stand up bass, and they. I don't remember that. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Landsman was a saxophone player. Yeah. <laughs> we were all in white ties and tails. It was, it like was a burlesque house because um, his, his ex wife is, is doing a striptease, remember? <laughs> No, wow. I don't remember that part. <laughs> <laughs> you read right past that? <laughs> I always wondered. You one of those guys? I'm not in this. Oh, scene. no, no, no. You was that choice. There were, there were, there were some, some actors who did that. And, would always, and you would always tell, because you know, those times we'd see an episode together and they go, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> did you read the script? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I read it all. <laughs> but you know, that was the most amazing thing. I mean, I just think of all those times I looked at episodes, I would read the scripts, and then you would see the actors, and we really, I really became a fan of all the other uh, portions of the show that I wasn't a part of, you know, the other storylines. And, you know, I just... That the scene between Avon and Stringer on the balcony is just classic, mm-hmm. you know. I think, uh, you know, Brother Muzon and Omar, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Clay on the stand, you know. <laughs> uh, um, you know, you just remember, you just remember all of those scenes, and I always, it, it, that was the great thing about coming to set and seeing those guys, because you were like, wow, man, I really, just as a fan of the show, I really enjoyed. Uh, uh, watching you, and I've always felt fortunate that you know I got a chance to kind of be a part of it. You know, watching these, you know, this great television show that was, you know, something I could watch as a fan. Also, one thing I want to ask you about that, because as, as you go through these like great scenes, um, and you talk, it was joking about like the bad acting you dealt with. Of course, one thing about the show is all the great acting by so many um, African American actors, and I know, and I know the show is not like sort of sanctimonious about race. It doesn't deal with race. It's like a big issue in the usual way. Um, and it's, I think, much more about capitalism, much more about money than about, about race, I guess, an issue. But it's, one, it's, probably, it's probably no dramatic show. I, I can't remember one or think of one that had so many great I agree, roles we, it, for, roles for black actors. It really wasn't about race. It was, right. about, it was about how money and power route itself, yeah. or, or fail to, uh, fail to properly route themselves. It was about the end of empire. It was about, right. it was about a lot of things. But the one thing we were not interested in was doing a show that was primarily about race because, um, by and large, in most of America, it's not lived that way. Race is, is, is there, it's present, but it's not much discussed openly. Um, we'll see in the next few months when Obama starts. Well, <laughs> not, you know what? He may win, he may lose. Race will be a profound part of that. Mm-hmm. But it won't be discussed. That's it. You know, it, it'll be, you know, be there'll be a million other reasons why yeah, it doesn't right. come up. 
Why um, is he so arrogant? He's not confident. He's, he's not, or, or even better, he's not a scary Negro, but they're standing him next to a scary Negro. <laughs> you know, that guy he's standing next to who's yelling, that's, you know, I mean, Has yeah. McCain used the term you people yet? I can't remember. <laughs> uh, but, I Sorry, mean, I think we digress, right? We digress. <laughs> but, you know, I felt like that ground had been covered like yeah. a generation earlier with homicide, with, with NYPD Blue. I felt like people writing directly at race. Um, and just with good times. Don't forget good times are addressed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How could I? <laughs> but there was something to be said for just letting people be. Baltimore is a city that was 65% African American. So the show was 65% African American. But, you know, to defend one thing, which was we used a lot of people from Baltimore who were not actors. Everybody from Snoop to, to Bill Zorzi to, to uh, Melvin. To Melvin, uh, little Melvin, uh, Melvin Williams to uh, Gary Diderio. And what they brought. What the dynamic was that we would often see that the actor who was like struggling, you know, the guy struggling to hit a mark or, or to say the line, the right, you know, we knew that we could, you know, there's, there's ways of editing performance, but what you were getting were these faces, this reality of Baltimore mixed in with, with, you know, really strong acting that would carry the scene. You were getting professional acting that was driving the scene, and yet it was, it was driving it through the real Baltimore. And there was something about, you know, I wouldn't change it for a world. I wouldn't change any of those roles. Sometimes it was hell getting the line out of them. But, you know, you would, you would then look at it later and say, I've never seen a face like that on TV exactly. delivering a line like that. You know, the fact that it wasn't polished said that it was something else, that it was, it was dealing in another realm. And I love that. I actually love that. That can still bite you on the ass. I have to, <laughs> I have to go in another direction for a second. I, I, it's a movie I did a few years ago. Uh, I wanted an authentic uh, uh, Central American actor. And, they, of course, you know... Um, I kept getting central casting of these this beautiful Spaniards. And, and so we were in the neighborhood in Los Angeles, and they found this, uh, this short, squat, really interesting little, primarily native-looking Guatemalan woman. And she was fantastic. She had a great laugh, and she was wonderful. And, and then we said, action, she went. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, what, what can people who can't act play the best? Anger. So I ran out to the truck and got a police uniform and came on and said, you're mad at me, you scream at me in Spanish and throw a frying pan at my head. And that's how I ended up working around it. You know, so you just, went for stereotypes. I went for stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> Go for stereotypes. About race, the first season, I, for my I'll never forget, uh, and I really like the way we dealt with it there, Bunk and McNulty, you would see them in bars, and one time it would be predominantly African-American, another time it would be predominantly white, you know? Uh, he was taking me to his bar, I was taking him to, to mine. And that said so much about, you know, the way it really happened. Never spoken. Yes. To speak about it. We said anything right. about race, but the scene, just the setting yeah. itself said how we interacted. And speaking of those bars, were there some characters in some of those bars? Oh, oh my goodness. Ooh, <laughs> man. The b and Tavern in the pilot? The this is the, oh, the first that season. Guy, man. That guy, and he had a beard, you know, this... It kind of looked like uh, Willie Nelson. Cigarette and he smoking. was just smoking and smoking. Yellow beard. And uh, he didn't understand that you had to do scenes over and over. Take this way, take this way to master different shots. And, uh, and he was just, and they kept him because he looked great. He was a bar fly who wasn't going to move anyway. So he's like, this is my spot. <laughs> and they were like, keep him in the scene. And he, he didn't. Was, and he didn't move. And, and then one time he said, hours. they said, cut. He said, 
man, when are you going to get this shit right? <laughs> and then I, I guess I shouldn't do this. But if you have a, a queasy stomach, uh, he lifted his beard. Oh, God. And he had a trach. Yeah. Mm. And he spat from his trach. And he, he walked away from there. And he, I he, he wobbled it. away. Uh, <laughs> and he was like, what's the matter? I was like, oh, this guy, oh, oh man. It, uh, uh, oh, but you can't well, get that. You can't get that in central casting. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, okay. we didn't get it on film either. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no. We got, oh no. Well, was like, no, you I'll know what? Yeah. You know what? A guy showed up uh, with a trach uh, to read for um, a part in the corner. Oh, I'll really? never forget this. And, and do you remember? We put him right in the shooting gallery. Do you remember this? You were probably in a scene with him. Mm. Yeah. It's a guy. And it was like, he showed up with a trach. It was like from heaven. It was like manna. You know, it's like something you would never think of. But, the, like, all of a sudden, I thought back to when we were researching that book. There were four guys with trachs yeah, who were coming yeah. up to Coppola at Monroe and Fayette. It was like, you would never think to ask for that, you know. Yeah. You would never ask your casting director, do you have some guys who have tracheotomies? <laughs> <laughs> You'd see a lot of upper and lower plates coming out. Though, you know, but never. Well, I'm sorry. I, we could listen to you uh -oh. for 60 hours. Uh, yeah, so, but I'm getting the sign over here, so we'll have to end on that. Lovely note. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, maybe I'll, mention, I'll end by ending that the Orioles came to New York and beat the Yankees in a series. Uh, so. <laughs> Who's hissing? Who's that? You can't be a fan of the wire anymore. You have to root for the Orioles if you're a fan of the wire. Okay. <laughs> but thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.